Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. When we were talking about Bodium Castle not long ago, Holly, you mentioned that medieval history is one of my favorites. Yep. Uh, Would you like to know what my first thought was? Of course I would. (laughs) I haven't done any of that in so long. Now, the reason that's funny (laughs) is I had just done (laughs) Zoe and Theodora (laughs) like two weeks before that. The thing is, Zoe and Theodora, while great, they, they're they not quite in my very favorite niche of medieval history because what I really, really love is all the mystics and the abbesses and the anchorites and, like, the writing that they have left behind about their lives and their experience in the world. And it's been way longer since we covered something in that particular focus. I think the last time with that was Julian of Norwich, which was back in 2019. So longer ago than Zoe and Theodora. So today, we have Teresa de Cartagena, who was a nun in what's now Spain in the 15th century. Teresa de Cartagena lived in a society that considered women to be inferior, and she was also deaf and chronically ill, living in a society that considered that to be a divine punishment rather than just part of the human condition. And her family were also conversos. Her her grandfather had converted from Judaism to Christianity, and that was at a time when persecution against both Jews and conversos was really widespread. So there was a lot that was working against her. And in spite of all that, she wrote two treatises that have survived until today, and those two treatises represent multiple firsts in Spanish history. Teresa was part of the Cartagena-Santa Maria family, who lived in the Kingdom of Castile in what is now Spain. Spain, as we know it today, did not exist yet. Instead, the Iberian Peninsula was divided into five kingdoms, Castile-Leon, Aragon, Navarre, and Portugal, which were all under Christian rule, as well as the Islamic Emirate of Granada. So as we noted earlier, the family had Jewish ancestry, but they had converted to Christianity by the time Teresa was born. Teresa's grandfather had originally been known as Salomo Halevi, and he had been the chief rabbi of the city of Burgos. He'd been one of the city's most prominent Jewish citizens. And at this time, Burgos was home to the largest Jewish community in the kingdom. But on July 21st of 1390 or 1391, he converted to Christianity along with four sons, a daughter, and his three brothers. His wife refused to convert, and their marriage was dissolved. At the time of his conversion, he was baptized as Pablo de Santa Maria, and sometimes his name is anglicized as Paul of Burgos. People converted from Judaism to Christianity for a lot of different reasons during this era. In some cases, it was a genuine act of religious conviction, but in others, people in a position of relative power or security realized that they could only stay in that position if they converted. So that might be a pragmatic decision or one that was really made under duress. But a lot of the time, it was not a freely made choice at all. Many people converted to try to escape persecution or violence. There were also forced baptisms and people who converted only under the threat of death during this time. Much of Pablo's own writing about his conversion has not survived. Historians have cited his personal ambitions and a fascination with Thomas Aquinas as possible factors. 
The timing of the family's conversion is relevant as well. Anti-Semitic persecution and violence had been increasing in the region since the early 12th century. It had worsened in the wake of the Black Death in the mid-1300s, and then during the Castilian Civil War. This war pitted the monarch, Pedro I, against his half-brother, Enrique II. Pedro was believed to be friendlier and more sympathetic toward the kingdom's Jewish population than his predecessors had been, and Enrique used this as leverage, whipping up anti-Semitic resentments and attacking Jewish communities directly. Enrique II ultimately defeated Pedro and took the throne in 1369, and as king, he issued decrees that further restricted Jewish people's rights. Then, on Ash Wednesday of 1391, Archdeacon Ferrand Martinez led a mob against the Jewish community of Sevilla, killing at least 4,000 people and baptizing others by force. Anti-Semitic violence spread from there, including to Burgos, where most of the Jewish population was forcibly baptized. Teresa's grandfather and his family converted to Christianity either about a year before or shortly after all this happened. So it seems incredibly likely that the increasing hostility and violence and possibly this specific massacre were also part of this decision. Pablo de Santa Maria had been one of the most prominent people in the Jewish community of Burgos before his conversion, and he continued to rise in prominence as part of the Christian community afterward. By 1402, he had been named Bishop of Cartagena. In 1412, he became Bishop of Burgos. He served as a royal chancellor in the courts of both Enrique III and Juan II of Castile and was one of Juan's tutors when he was still a boy. In these roles, he also worked against the Jewish community that he had previously been part of. He drafted anti-Jewish laws in his work as chancellor. He also became a favorite of anti-Pope Benedict XIII, who issued a broadly anti-Semitic bull in 1415. So this was during the Western Schism, That's when the Pope in Rome was being opposed by an anti-Pope in Avignon. And so even though Benedict's bull wasn't really officially connected to the formal Catholic Church in Rome, it did influence later bulls that were issued by other popes. As we'll discuss in a bit, this wasn't necessarily typical of conversos, but the Santa Maria family became very powerful and well-connected. Diplomats and royals were frequent guests at the family home. Other notable people in the family included Pablo's brother, Alvar Garcia de Santa Maria, who was a royal scribe and chronicler in the court of Juan II. Pablo's son, Gonzalo Garcia de Santa Maria, was a diplomat as well as a professor at the University of Salamanca and became bishop of Plasencia. Another son was Alonso de Cartagena, who was a bishop and a scholar. He translated works by Seneca and Cicero and wrote a commentary on Aristotle's ethics. Pedro's third son was Pedro de Cartagena, who was Teresa's father. He was a knight in the court of Juan II and a counselor to several monarchs. These included Enrique IV, who came to power in 1454, as well as Fernando and Isabel, who united the kingdoms of Aragon and Castile when they got married in 1469. Teresa was born into this family sometime around 1425. Her mother was Maria de Sarabia, and Teresa was their second daughter, probably their third or fourth child. And there's really not a lot of documentation about her or her life. This was not uncommon. It was true of all of the women in her family. 
Most of the time, their names only appear in things like wills, marriage documents, and birth documents for their firstborn sons. However, based on the evidence that we have, the family does seem to have prioritized education for all of their children, regardless of their gender. Teresa wrote that she attended the University of Salamanca, and that's something that was probably only possible thanks to her uncle being a professor there, since women were not allowed to formally enroll. And it doesn't seem as though Teresa was the only one of her sisters to be educated. There's also a record in the family library, which was very expansive, of one of her sisters checking out a volume by Roman scholar and philosopher Boethius. This was written in Castilian and Latin, which means that she could read one or both of those languages. Uh, Also, according to these library records, she never returned that book, which I just find hilarious. Her fine was levied by the modern (laughs) era, and it's $22 million. There is one document detailing members of the family that suggests that Teresa was betrothed at some point. But the identity of her fiancé is a little bit vague, and we do not know why they didn't marry. Instead, Teresa became a nun, and we're going to talk more about that after a sponsor break. So as we said earlier, there's just not a lot of documentation of Teresa de Cartagena's life. One of the surviving documents we do have is a petition that her uncle Alonso, Bishop of Burgos, submitted to Pope Nicholas V at the Vatican. He did that on her behalf in April of 1449. She would have been in her early 20s at that point. Alonso was requesting that she be allowed to transfer from the Franciscan order to the Cistercians or the Benedictines. When he made this request, she was probably a Clarian nun, also known as the Poor Clares, in the Franciscan Monastery of Burgos. Alonso doesn't give a specific reason for this request. At the time, it was only considered acceptable to change religious orders if you were moving to one that was perceived as being stricter than the one that you were leaving. Leaving the Franciscans at all was considered apostasy, which is why the request had to go to the Vatican. Alonso just says that Teresa is, quote, no longer able to remain comfortably with peace of mind in a monastery and order of this type for specific and reasonable causes. He says that she had found, quote, a kind welcome with both the Cistercians and the Benedictines, sort of suggesting that maybe her welcome had not been very kind with the Franciscans. This could have been something as simple as a personality conflict, but it's also possible that this was related to Teresa's status as a conversa. Although Teresa's own family had become even more powerful and prominent after their conversion, a lot of times this was just not the case. Many Jewish people saw conversos as traitors and apostates, and a lot of Christians viewed them with suspicion, believing that their conversions were not genuine and that they were still secretly Jewish. This could linger even generations after a conversion, with old Christians whose families always had been Christian seeing new Christians as a threat. Some of this was directly connected to anti-Semitism, but within some monastic communities, there was also a perception that new Christians were more likely to have unorthodox beliefs that bred division and religious dissent. During Teresa de Cartagena's lifetime, the Franciscan order was becoming increasingly anti-converso, and some of the loudest anti-converso voices in the church were Franciscan. 
And in January of 1449, just a few months before her uncle Alonso made this petition, anti-converso riots had started in Toledo and then spread uh, to other parts of Castile. This uprising started after Chief Minister Alvaro de Luna levied a tax to help pay for a war, and that tax was to be collected by a tax collector who was a converso. Pedro Sarmiento, who was a local official, first attacked this tax collector's property, and then he rallied a much larger attack on the converso population in general. More than 20 people were killed, and many new Christians' homes were destroyed. In the wake of this violence, Alonso de Cartagena wrote Defensorium Unitatis Christiane, or Defense of Christian Unity, which was a biblical, legal, and philosophical defense of conversos from discrimination and violence. He argued that God had saved all of humanity and that these types of divisions went against God's law. It's possible that, considering the Franciscan Order's attitudes, increasing anti-converso violence in general, and Alonso's own arguments on the subject, that he felt compelled to act on Teresa's behalf. Or it's entirely possible that she actually went to him for help. We just really do not know. Yeah, whatever the situation was, the Vatican approved Alonso's request. Teresa most likely moved to the Cistercian Monastery of Huelgas, which is just outside Burgos. Records for most of these religious communities haven't survived until today. In some cases, they were destroyed during the Napoleonic Wars, so there's some conjecture here. But this would have been a really logical choice. It was in Burgos, so Teresa wouldn't have had to move very far. And it was also a really prestigious monastery. It was a popular choice for wealthy and high-ranking people to send their daughters to to be educated. So this was a respected enough religious community that Teresa's being there would have reflected really well on the rest of her family, including her uncle Alonso. In May of 1449, Alonso followed up with a second petition to the Vatican, this time requesting that Teresa be granted whatever stipend was common among the nuns of her new order and requesting that she be eligible to become abbess in her new community when she reached the age of 25. This petition was also granted. So these two petitions are pretty new discoveries. They were published as part of a doctoral thesis in 2001, and from there they caught the attention of established scholars of Teresa de Cartagena and her work. And since then, historians have drawn a couple of logical conclusions from these two documents. One is that based on the text of the second petition, Teresa hadn't turned 25 yet in 1449, so that helps narrow down the year of her birth. But then the other is that at this point, Teresa could still hear, because if she had been deaf, she would not have been considered a candidate to become an abbess. In July of 1453, Alonso de Cartagena drafted a will that bequeathed Teresa 100 florins, quote, to subsidize her maintenance. He died on July 12, 1456, so that's three years later, and based on time frames in Teresa's own writing, that is also around the same time that she became deaf. That writing was Arbol de, la de los Enfermos, or Grove of the Infirm. And in this work, she describes being chronically ill during her childhood and adolescence, and then becoming deaf in her prime. And then based on how people typically bracketed their ages during the medieval period, that would have been sometime in her late 20s or early 30s. In Grove of the Infirm, she describes having been deaf for about 20 years at the time of actually writing that. 
So she was probably in her 40s or 50s when she wrote this, and that would have been sometime in the 1470s or 80s. So we'll get into more detail shortly, but Grove of the Infirm is an account of Teresa's own experience with deafness and an exploration of how it ultimately brought her closer to God. Its second half is an extended meditation on the virtue of patience, and after it began to circulate outside of her monastery, people accused her of plagiarizing it. So a couple of years later, she wrote Admiration Operum Dei, or Wonder at the Works of God, which defended her own right as a woman to write. So both of these works suggest that Teresa was really well-read, especially when it came to works of religion and philosophy. Both of these treatises incorporate her interpretations of Bible verses, and they draw from the work of a lot of other philosophers and theologians. This includes the work of St. Augustine of Hippo, Roman philosopher Boethius, St. Jerome of Stryden, Pope Gregory I, and St. Bernard of Clairvaux. These treatises each represent some firsts in Spanish literature. The Consolario is a literary genre encompassing various works of consolation and comfort, including things like poems, songs, treatises, and orations. Grove of the Infirm is part of this genre, and while these types of works were widely read and distributed, it's the only one from 15th century Spain that we have from a woman's perspective. This is also probably the first work on deafness by a deaf person in Spanish literature. Wonder at the Works of God is described as Spain's first piece of feminist literature. It was also written during philosophical, literary, and ethical debates about the nature of women and women's place in society that was taking place in 15th century Spain. And Wonder at the Works of God is the only contribution to that conversation that was written by a woman. We'll talk about these works in some more detail after another sponsor break. Teresa de Cartagena's Grove of the Infirm is not exactly an autobiography. She really doesn't say much about herself or her life at all. The only place where she's even personally identified by name is in the prologue, which was written by a copyist and not by her, The copyist gives Teresa's name and says that she's a nun, but it omits the name of her order. Not sure if that's accidental or deliberate. Teresa also does not say much at all about her monastic community or her daily life there. Instead, she writes at length about her own experience with deafness, something she describes as profoundly isolating. She describes feeling shut off from the rest of the world, metaphorically taken to an island that she calls opprobrium hominum et abietio plibus, or the scorn of all mankind and outcast people. That sounds bleak to me. Uh, Yes. But really, this would have been especially isolating for her given the time. While the deaf community today tends to describe deafness as a difference rather than a disability, that was just not the case in 15th century Spain. Deafness was seen as a disability, and disabilities were seen as punishments from God, and they were heavily stigmatized. Deaf people were also marginalized under Spanish law, especially if they couldn't speak. People who couldn't speak could not inherit property, and that was something that was in effect until the 16th century. Although there were some efforts to teach deaf children to speak because of this legal requirement for inheritance, there was really no system of deaf education when Teresa lived. That wouldn't really happen until the 16th century either. 
So because of all of this stigma and other barriers, it's unlikely that Teresa had many or even any other deaf people around her to share their experiences and knowledge with her. And although there were monastic sign languages going back to at least the 10th century, these were typically more oriented towards necessary communications during periods of silence rather than things like daily conversations or providing interpretation during religious lessons or services. Basically, Teresa would have been surrounded by hearing people in an environment that had very little in the way of accessibility. To add to all of that, her uncle Alonso de Cartagena's death at around the same time that she became deaf might have added another layer to her grief. That's compounded by a passage in Grove of the Infirm that some historians and literary critics have interpreted as being a reference to her own family. Quote, Even if one is the son of a duke, an admiral, or a marquise, if he is inflicted with a great suffering or an embarrassing wound, not only his friends and relatives hold him in contempt, but his own father and mother will dispatch him quickly from their house and put him where he can cause no detriment or disorder. So there's some speculation here, but it's possible that by losing her uncle, Teresa was really losing her biggest supporter within her family. Although Teresa could speak, after becoming deaf, she chose not to. She wrote that the highest purpose of speech was to praise God, although in her opinion, that was really the last thing that most people were using it for. But its second highest purpose was to ask questions and be answered, and that was something she felt she couldn't do after losing her hearing. She wrote, quote, "'Speech is pointless without hearing, like faith without works.'" And she described her vow of silence as something that God had commanded her to do. Although her writing contains a lot of bitterness and grief around her hearing loss, Grove of the Infirm is also a work of consolation. One of Teresa's possible influences in this is a work called Book of Consolations of Human Life by Pedro de Luna, who later became Antipope Benedict XIII. He wrote about deafness as bringing people closer to God, and he advised deaf people to take consolation in the fact that being deaf kept them from hearing the evils and temptations of the world. And he also drew a distinction between the health of a person's body and the health of their soul. Teresa builds on a similar argument, drawing from her own experience. She writes about taking incredible solace in reading and writing, calling her books, quote, wondrous graftings from healthful groves. And she describes eventually finding her deafness as, quote, a kind solitude, a blessed solitude, a solitude that isolates me from dangerous sins and surrounds me with sure blessings, a solitude that removes me from things harmful and dangerous to both my body and soul. While reflecting on the Bible and works of theology and philosophy, Teresa comes to the conclusion that God's particular love for her ultimately led him to choose her to become deaf, something that then caused her to suffer, but which ultimately also brought her much closer to him. Her deafness removed worldly distractions from her spiritual life. In the end, she describes her deafness as something that brought her a spiritual peace and that made her better able to hear, quote, the voices of holy doctrine that scriptures teach us. She also writes at length on patience and the ability of suffering to transform the seven vices into virtues. It was not common at all in 15th century Castile for women to write works that were meant to be read beyond their friends or family. 
In Grove of the Infirm, Teresa takes a lot of the same steps we've talked about in other women writers' works on the show to cushion the fact that the piece was written by a woman. She is often very self-deprecating, framing her understanding as just the simple and unsophisticated thoughts of a humble woman. Yeah, we've this has come up in other women writers, especially during the like medieval and early modern period, with this sort of tone of, I just don't know anything. I'm just a simple woman. So don't listen to me at all. But don't be scared of my thoughts. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's kind of keeping everything at a distance from her. Uh, she also notes at the beginning of this work that it was written in a response to a virtuosa senora or a virtuous lady who had requested it. This might have been Lady Juana de Mendoza, who was wife of the poet Gomez Manrique, and she was a lady-in-waiting to Isabel I when she was still a princess. Wonder at the Works of God is specifically addressed to Juana, so it would make sense for her to also be the virtuous lady in Grove of the Affirmed, who is just not specifically named. In places, Teresa also implies that she's more broadly writing for anyone who is deaf or chronically ill. So... To sort of add another layer of of buffering around her, there's this whole idea that she's not writing out of her own ambitions or vanity. She's writing in response to someone else's specific request and for a community that was seen as disadvantaged. She also says specifically that she turned to writing to keep from falling into the sin of idleness, idleness being a particularly dangerous companion for her solitude. All of this careful cushioning did not wind up protecting her, though. According to her own writing, both men and, quote, some discreet women claimed she had plagiarized a man's work in Grove of the Infirm. It's possible that one of these critics was the bishop who replaced her late uncle. Yeah, to be super clear, nobody seems to have found any fault with the actual things that she wrote. Just the idea that she was the one that wrote it. Right. You couldn't have done this, you silly. Right. (laughs) So, she wrote a response, Admiration Operem Dei, or Wonder at the Works of God. That's a title that sort of merges together both the vernacular and Latin. And in this work, she writes about people approaching Grove of the Infirm with sort of a wondered bafflement at the very idea that a woman had written it. And she described this as insulting to her, but offensive to God. Teresa draws a distinction between wonder and awe at the works of God, and wonder mixed with incredulity. In her mind, the latter sows doubts about God's work and put more focus into whatever inspired this sensation than on God himself as the source of all creation. Teresa also notes that people just take it for granted that men write because men have been writing things for so long. But that mistakes a human custom for a natural fact. Quote, because for men to write books, learn sciences, and use them are activities that they have engaged in for a long time, and it seems the natural course. And that is why no one marvels at it. And since women have not been accustomed to it, nor do they learn sciences or possess an understanding as perfected as that of men, it is considered extraordinary. But it is not a greater wonder, nor is it easier for God's omnipotence to do either one or the other, because he who could or can engender men's understanding of the sciences could just as easily engender women's understanding of them, even if women's reason is imperfect or not as able or sufficient to receive or remember as men's reason. She also states, without question, that she, 
a disabled woman wrote Garden of the Infirm, and that people seemed to have decided that was impossible. But if it was impossible for a disabled woman to write a treatise, that meant that it was in fact miraculous, and to deny that was to deny all the work of God. That didn't mean that her work should be put on a pedestal, though. She wrote that God's miracles were continual, happening all the time and all around, many of those miracles so mundane that people took them for granted. In Wonder at the Works of God, Teresa both buys into and undermines the gender roles of the day. She writes that God made the sexes different to complement one another, using a metaphor of the bark and the pith of the tree. The sturdy bark has to be there to protect the tree's delicate inner workings in order for the tree to flourish. This was a pretty common metaphor in the day, but a lot of times it was used in the reverse of how she did. Women in a more typical presentation were seen as the outer, less refined bark, while men were represented as the more refined, more advanced inner pith. And she had it as the opposite framing of that. She also notes that God did not arrange these differences into a hierarchy with men being superior to women. It was people who did that. She also uses the story of Judith and Holofernes as a whole example of the point she was making, that it was God that gave Judith, an unexpected person, uh, to the power to defeat Holofernes in that story. Teresa concludes with a discussion of the powers of the soul, which are understanding, memory, and will, and how they can come together to strive for good. She describes God as patient and wonderful with all of humanity, showing sinners mercy and grace. So we don't know how this second work was received. And really, we know almost nothing else about Teresa de Cartagena beyond this point. We don't know how she spent the rest of her life or how long she lived or where she was buried. It's possible that she was still living when the Spanish Inquisition was established in 1748. It's even possible that she wrote those works after the Inquisition had started. And some literary critics have interpreted Grove of the Infirm as a metaphorical consolation not just to the people she specifically mentions, which is anyone who was sick or disabled, but specifically to conversos as well. There were 13,000 conversos who were tried of suspected heresy just during the first decade of the Inquisition. In 1481, Pero Lopez del Trigo copied both Grove of the Infirm and Wonder at the Works of God so that they could be placed in a museum. We don't know why, and we don't know who asked him to do it, but he was a friend of Teresa's father, so it might have been at his direction. That is literally the only reason we still have these two treatises today. The first reference to Teresa's treatises in other works dates back to the late 18th century, and the first commentary on it was written by José Amador de los Rios in 1865. Grove of the Infirm and Wonder at the Works of God were published in full for the first time beyond that one copy in a museum in the 20th century, and that's really when historians and literary critics started studying them. It wasn't even confirmed that Teresa was definitely part of the Cartagena-Santa Maria family until 1952. That's a discovery that came from the work of Spanish historian Francisco Cantera Burgos. The kingdoms of Aragon, Castile, Navarre, and Portugal expelled their Jewish population in the 1490s. The Emirate of Granada was conquered in 1492, with its Muslim population forced to convert or leave. This placed the whole Iberian Peninsula under Christian rule. 
But efforts to eliminate Jewish and Muslim influences continued, including the passage of blood purity laws that declared anyone with a Jewish or Muslim ancestor to be considered legally Jewish or Muslim. However, Teresa's family was declared to be of pure blood, meaning not Jewish, in 1604. Uh, I read a whole paper that was um, about the the idea that that maybe it was about the idea of how her converso heritage uh, may have influenced her writing because we didn't really get into it in any kind of specificity. But like she doesn't mention Jesus a lot. There is a lot less mention of Jesus than one might expect in a medieval religious work. Um, and so that it was uh, drawing a conclusion of whether being a conversa affected that or influenced how she was writing. Um, and then it got to the point about her family sort of being retroactively declared to have, quote, pure blood and how that sort of retroactively erased her whole identity as uh, being part of a conversal family. Okay, and I have some listener mail to take us out. This is from Krista, and Krista wrote after our Freedom Summer episode. Krista says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I was so excited to see the episode on Freedom Summer showed up in my feed. I first learned about Freedom Summer when attending a history class at Miami University of Ohio. My professor added in a last-minute requirement to passing the class, volunteering at the Freedom Summer reunion being held in Miami. I'll admit I was annoyed at the extra requirement at first, but then became intrigued about the project's impact on the civil rights movement, a topic that was rarely taught in my small town high school. There's a memorial set up outside of the church on the Western campus, the part of Miami University that housed the trainees in honor of Freedom Summer and those that lost their lives. Your episode expanded my knowledge about the three men that disappeared and whose names rest on the memorial plaque. I always thought of that spot as a peaceful but somber place, knowing that one of the men had just left from there before disappearing really pressed upon me the importance of it all. Thank you for your lovely podcast. I'm constantly sharing with my husband, friends, and students the interesting things I learn from you each week, Krista. So thank you so much for sending this, Krista. Um, there's two pictures in the in the email, and one is a picture of the Ohio historical marker for Freedom Summer um, and the other is the space that Krista was talking about on campus, which looks kind of like an amphitheater. Uh, it does look like a really lovely and somber place. And I honestly would probably also be frustrated if I were in college and my professor at the last minute said to pass this class, you have to volunteer for a thing. That would probably uh, rub me the, long, the wrong way a little bit too, regardless of what specifically the thing was because I remember college as being a busy time. <laughs> and I don't love last-minute additions to things I'm supposed to do. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of, like, um, uh, obligatory surprises. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a thing. Um, so I I went to the University of North Carolina at Asheville, and there was a, a multi-part humanities series that we had to take to graduate and every semester that you were in humanities, you had to go to a certain number of what they called cultural events. Mm -hmm. And man, people hated going to cultural events. But in general, you got to choose them. <laughs> right. Sometimes there would be ones that like professors particularly wanted you to do. But it wasn't like you got to class and somebody was like, you got to go do, do this cultural event tonight or you fail your class. So anyway, 
Um, thank you so much, Krista, for sending this email and these pictures. This really does look so lovely, like such a beautiful spot on the campus. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com. And we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.